this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Thank you for joining us uh, today for this podcast. My name is Sarah Najmi and I'm a cardiothoracic surgery resident at Duke University. I'm here today with Dr. Thomas D'Amico. Dr. D'Amico is a professor of surgery, chief of general thoracic surgery, and program director of the thoracic surgery program at the Duke University Medical Center. Dr. D'Amico, thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Thank you, Sarah. So we will be discussing the subject of VATS anatomic lung resections, focusing on operative planning, intraoperative techniques, and pitfalls. Let's start with the case. Um, so this is a 60-year-old female who is referred to your office with a 2.5-centimeter spiculated nodule in the le- right upper lobe found during a CT chest performed after presenting to the emergency room following a mo- motor vehicle accident. A PET scan was ordered and reveals strong FDG uptake in the right upper lobe nodule with no other activity in the mediastinum or e- elsewhere in the chest or abdomen. Based on this clinical scenario, Dr. D'Amico, how would you proceed with your workup? Well, whenever you assess uh, known or suspected lung cancer, I think you have to divide generally into two categories the patients. One is uh, clinical stage one, like you have now, which we see frequently and uh, increasingly more frequently with screening, and the second uh, type is any advanced, locally advanced lung cancer, either a large T status, clinical end status, uh, preoperative chemotherapy, uh, because they're really a different operative planning um, as well as a different operative conduct. So for this patient, I think the decision should be made what type of mediastinal staging should be done and whether a diagnosis is required prior to uh, addressing it surgically and then go from there. Um, So you mentioned a few elements that you would like to know about the patient's history, including history of prior chemotherapy. Are there other specific details within the patient history that you are uh, looking for right now and any other laboratory or imaging test that you would want at this time? So I think that older age, tobacco history, uh, and appearance on CT scan, you said it was speculated, as well as pet avidity represent the most important risk factors for a solitary, newly found solitary lung nodule to be malignant. If you knew that this was a growing pet avid solitary nodule, it would be even more Concerning, so if you knew about a past CT, um, that would be very helpful. So this patient is an ex-smoker. She smoked about one pack a day for 40 years. Um, She does not use any inhalers at home. She appears to be a reasonable surgical candidate. Assuming this is a non-small cell lung cancer, what operation would you offer this patient at this time? I think for tumors less than two centimeters, Mediastinal staging, in most cases for clinically node negative patients, would be considered optional. For two to three centimeters, 
I would recommend some type of mediastinal assessment, although it's not frequently performed, and certainly for tumors larger than three centimeters. So for a tumor less than three centimeters, as this one is, I think most surgeons would um, proceed with a thoracoscopic wedge resection with frozen section and proceeding with lobectomy if the frozen section is positive. I might perform an EBIS or mediastinoscopy first, but I think that that is uh, certainly not totally uh, decided upon by NCCN guidelines. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about the advantages of anatomic resection uh, compared to wedge resection for early stage non-small cell lung cancer? So assuming this patient has a 2.5 centimeter nodule, why uh, should we why should we proceed with an anatomic resection as opposed to just a wedge? It's a good question, and, and I think that there are uh, many differing viewpoints internationally. I think what evidence has shown for solid nodules greater than two centimeters, the evidence is very convincing that low bar anatomic resection is better than sublobar anatomic resection in patients that would tolerate a lobectomy and that sublobar resection for a larger lesions should be reserved for situations where lobar resection is intolerable either because of pulmonary function tests or previous lobectomy on the same side or other reasons that make lobectomy physiologically less uh, desirable. And is the advantage mostly to decrease the incidence of local recurrence or uh, distant recurrence? Most studies show that, the, that both local recurrence and survival is improved by lobectomy for nodules that are greater than two centimeters. So based on uh, the above scenario um, and discussion, you, you plan to proceed with a VATS right upper lobectomy on this patient. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about your technique when it comes to VATS lobectomy? First of all, how many incisions do you use and where do you place these incisions? So our approach uh, has been the two incision thoracoscopic approach with an anterior access incision in the fifth intercostal space usually about two, uh, two centimeters to four centimeters, and a camera access incision that is five millimeters, uh, just posterior to the um, anterior iliac uh, crest in the seventh or eighth intercostal space, and that camera incision can be converted to an access for the placement of a stapler in difficult cases, uh, specifically difficult right or left upper lobectomies. And do you change uh, your port placement if you're doing an upper lobe versus a middle lobectomy or a lower lobectomy? In general, we don't change our, our port placements. Uh, occasionally, one intercostal space will be significantly wider and therefore more advantageous to use as a port and dissection or occasionally on a middle lobe uh, case, I will put the, the access incision uh, maybe one interspace lower to create a uh, 
more strategic uh, superior access line, but in general we don't change our ports much based on the location of the tumor, either upper lobe or lower lobe. So let's talk specifically about right upper lobectomies, or VATS right upper lobectomies. What are the key steps in performing a VATS right upper lobectomy, in your opinion? So I think that the key steps for every lobectomy is to uh, have the strategy of uh, the initial dissection being to lengthen the hilum, to make all of the structures more accessible and therefore making the conduct of the operation much easier from start to finish. In, in most upper lobe and lower lobe cases, the first, the first dissection that is done is to divide the posterior pleural reflection. In the lower lobe, starting with the inferior pulmonary ligament, but in this case, from the, in the upper lobe, starting with the pleura overlying the upper lobe bronchus and then dissecting circumferentially around uh, to the top of the hilum and and then ma many different strategies can um, can be used from there but it is much it, it improves the conduct of the operation significantly if the strategy when you start the case in your mind is to lengthen the hilum what do you think are the most important pitfalls that one should keep in mind during hilar dissection for a right upper lobectomy? Well, there are a lot of ways that uh, pitfalls can negatively affect a right upper lobectomy. The second strategy um, for any lobectomy, and I think it's particularly valuable for right upper lobectomy, is to remove all lymph nodes as they are seen so to continue from posteriorly in a right upper lobectomy uh, to completely dissect out the level 11 lymph node between the upper lobe bronchus and the bronchus intermedius. And that one maneuver uh, removes many of the possible pitfalls that could uh, then occur, either pitfalls in dissecting out the bronchus or uh, the truncus arteriosus or the structure that is the most common cause of conversions for right upper lobectomy, which is the posterior ascending artery. Uh, and I can't emphasize enough that, especially in difficult cases, if dissection is being done with the concept of removing all visible lymph nodes, the entire operation will be easier. So you are um, you started the dissection posteriorly um, and you're trying to get around the right upper lobe bronchus and suddenly there is dark blood that starts pooling around the, your instrument. What is your, your approach to for a potential PA injury thoracoscopically and do you try to control the injury thoracoscopically? Well, I think, I think um, you pointed out the most important initial step is to identify in your mind where you think the bleeding is coming from. From this description, it could be coming from the acetous vein, but you're describing the, a location of the pulmonary artery. And I think this, this would be an area relatively uh, easy to at least temporarily control the bleeding thoracoscopically. And so the two major steps are to have a suction uh, so that the pool of blood does not uh, become higher to the injury 
and to put some form of tamponade, usually a sponge stick, directly on the injury um, with as least, uh, the least amount of force as is possible to control, uh, completely control the bleeding. So don't push harder than you have to just to get uh, temporary tamponade and then make a decision if this is uh, reparable or not thoracoscopically. My personal practice is just to wait at least 10 minutes before making that decision and then re-looking at the uh, vascular injury one more time before deciding whether to open or not. And many times on uh, moderate vascular injuries, that amount of tamponade will temporarily control the bleeding so that further dissection can be performed either open or thoracoscopically. So we talked about a right upper lobectomy. Now let's assume that this lesion was in the left upper lobe. Um, can you just talk to us quickly about uh, the key operative steps for a left upper lobectomy uh, by VATS and what are the most common pitfalls of that operation? Uh, a left upper lobectomy is more challenging in terms of vascular control because the arterial branches uh, surround the bronchus as opposed to being all anterior to the bronchus as it is for the right upper lobe. Uh, in addition, there is uh, a higher degree of variability in the uh, vascular, to supply, vascular supply to the left upper lobe than there is the right upper lobe. Uh, my technique, however, is um, relatively similar in that the first dissection is done posteriorly. Um, instead of using the bronchus as the landmark, the pulmonary artery uh, and the aorta are used as the landmark, dividing all the tissue between the PA and the aorta, exposing the uh, aorta pulmonary lymph nodes uh, visibly uh, before making a decision where to go, either uh, beginning back with anterior dissection or continuing working from posterior to anterior in the fissure uh, or just opening the fissure. Um, some people talk about um, potential injury to the recurrent laryngeal nerve during left upper lobectomies. How do these injuries usually happen? At what uh, component, what part of the operation can they happen? Well, it could it could happen. Uh, injury to the recurrent laryngeal nerve on the left uh, could happen during uh, routine lymph node dissection, where a complete mediastinal uh, lymph node dissection is required, um, and there are clinically positive lymph nodes. Sometimes. Uh, there's stretch to the recurrent laryngeal nerve that injures it. I think more common it is uh, inattention to the landmarks that are uh, available to uh, identify and preserve the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Uh, and I think this uh, again points to my strategy of lengthening the hilum. As long as the uh, pleural tissue circumferentially around the left upper lobe has been removed, visibility of the uh, anatomy of the recurrent laryngeal nerve is improved, and the chances of preserving the nerve are improved as well. 
So let's move on and talk about a slightly different case. So let's assume that um, this is another patient, um, 60 years old, uh, but now has a lesion that is 1.6 centimeters in size in the right upper lobe. Um, her PFTs also show an FEV1 of 50% and DLCO of 50%. How would that change your surgical plan? Well, if she's never had uh, surgery on the right side, I think I would still um, favor a right upper lobectomy, but there are certain there are certain um, situations in which a sublobar resection uh, would be preferred, and it really depends on which of the three segments the nodule is in. Uh, I think the if the nodule is relatively peripheral in the posterior segment, it, a segment two resection is relatively straightforward uh, technically, uh, and if a uh, an adequate hyalurin mediastinal lymph node dissection is performed, that could be uh, uh, an accept acceptable operation in certain patients that are high risk, especially if this patient had other comorbidities. Uh, the uh, segment one and segment three are more difficult technically, but certainly can be done. And I also think it, it um, uh, the decision should also include whether uh, the uh, emphysema or fibrosis in the upper lobe is heterogeneous or homogeneous. For example, if one particular segment is most affected by emphysema uh, and that's where the tumor is, then a segmentectomy makes uh, more sense. However, if there is a nodule in segment two and the emphysema is focused in segments one and three, removing only a segment in that case really doesn't make any sense. And assuming this nodule was in the uh, superior segment of the right lower lobe, what do you think are the advantages of a segmentectomy compared to a wedge resection in this patient with uh, borderline pulmonary function? Well, I think a segment six resection, if the nodule is um, acceptably located makes the most sense among the, the, uh, the potential segmentectomies for a patient as it, it is relatively easy to perform and the difference between uh, segment 6 resection and a lower lobectomy is four segments as opposed to a segmentectomy of the right upper lobe or the middle lobe uh, where only one or two segments are preserved. So we spoke about um, superior segmentectomy for the lower lobes. What other segments are amenable to sublobar resection in the lower lobes specifically? I think any, any segment is uh, potentially accessible depending on the nature of the tumor. I think individual basal or segmentectomies uh, for the difficult segments, segment seven, segment eight, segment, segment nine, and segment 10, uh, are more uh, useful for ground glass opacities because the uh, uh, because GGOs are uh, more appropriate for segmentectomies and the margin is not as crucial and uh, often uh, the the nodule in the lower lobe 
borders two segments. Um, so a bisegmentectomy can be performed usually either uh, seven and eight or nine and ten, uh, or relatively straightforward. And um, sometimes a bisegmentectomy is preferable just based on the arterial anatomy. Uh, so uh, the most important step in proceeding with operative planning is to get a CT angiogram to know the exact uh, arterial anatomy, whether all four of the basal segments are separate or whether two branch uh, from common trunks and which are the common trunks. Can you talk to us uh, or comment about the risk of air leak following segmentectomy as opposed to lobectomy? Which one has the higher chance of air leak um, and do they have different length of stays in your experience postoperatively? Well, I think that's a, an interesting question. I think there are more similarities among most segmentectomies compared to lobectomy than there are differences. I think uh, the nature and length of, a, of an air leak after segmentectomy is dependent on how the parenchyma is managed. The most common way to manage the parenchyma during segmentectomy in North America is to staple along the segmental fissure lines, which can be identified in a variety of ways, either with uh, uh, insufflation, selective insufflation, or endocyanin dye, uh, or other techniques. It is more common in Asia to use uh, electric cautery to divide the segmental fissures along uh, the plane uh, similarly identified, creating a raw surface that is more likely to have air leaks. Having said that, uh, those air leaks heal uh, remarkably quickly, and while the length of stay may be a day or two longer, they're not that significantly different, um, and I don't think that one technique uh, is a significant advantage over another in terms of air leak, um, but it is certainly much more straightforward just to staple the segmental fissure line uh, than it is to dissect it with electric artery or other uh, energy sources. And do you advocate for any use of adjunctive measures um, to try to prevent air leaks from staple lines, such as sealants, glues, or over-sewing the staple line? I think, um, I think the use of glues and other uh, uh, adjunctive therapies to prevent post-operative air leaks is uh, excessive. I think uh, in most cases it isn't necessary um, and they are relative, these adjunctive measures are relatively costly. When, when there's a visible parenchymal leak, um, usually due to dissections and uh, lice adhesions, I think it is wise to oversew those uh, because it is relatively easy to do and certainly will decrease air leak time. And these are not usually in relation to where the staple line is. Um, but in most cases, these types of air leaks will heal without uh, any uh, 
unnecessary adjunctive measures which have not uh, in the literature been proven to be helpful. I'd like to expand a little bit more about the post-operative management and uh, expected post-operative course um, for patients following VATS anatomic resections. How long are these patients usually at the hospital? I think that that is a um, difficult to question to answer um, uh, simply. I think it really depends on numerous factors, uh, including the age of the patient, other comorbidities, um, and the conduct of the operation. However, as a, um, uh, as a round figure, I would expect that in most hospital series that the median length of stay should be around three days, with some patients going home in two days, some patients going home longer than three days, um, and there's an occasional patient that you'd be willing to send home on the first post-operative day. And since this is a, a hot topic nowadays, can you tell us a little bit more about your strategy for pain management post-operatively for patients who underwent VATS anatomic resections? So our, our service and program is very much dedicated to minimizing post-operative use of narcotics. So on the uh, standard thoracoscopic lobectomy patient, we have the anesthesiologist place a regional pain catheter that is called a, a, an erector spiny catheter that is uh, much easier to place than an epidural does not have the complications of an epidural, uh, does not limit anticoagulation the way an epidural does, uh, but provides similar uh, regional uh, analgesia. We typically leave the catheter in for two days uh, and remove it upon removal of the chest tube, which is usually on post-operative day number two, at which time patients are started on an aggressive regimen of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories uh, uh, in conjunction with Tylenol unless there are uh, allergies, etc. And in a majority of patients, we can have patients discharged without taking narcotics. So let's assume that patient we performed a segmentectomy on, a superior segmentectomy on, is recovering on the ward, then on post-op day two, um, patient is eating more and the chest tube output starts increasing to about 800 cc's in 24 hours, and the fluid appears milky. What is your approach for managing post-operative chylothorax following that segmentectomy? Well, uh, in terms of any particular patient, I would uh, renew in my, review in my own mind what the conduct of the operation was. So if this was a uh, right segment six with an aggressive mediastinal lymph node dissection, um, as would be appropriate, and the drainage uh, appears when the patient starts to eat, uh, I would assume that that's a chylothorax from the lymph node dissection and uh, uh, treat the patient accordingly, uh, which I'll describe. If, however, uh, a a, an aggressive lymph node dissection had not been uh, performed, 
I would review the video of the uh, procedure and determine if somehow the thoracic duct had been inadvertently uh, injured. For an injured duct, uh, repair is going to be necessary. For a patient with mediastinal lymph node dissection, usually this course of therapy is effective. We would first uh, limit the patient to a low-fat diet, and if we could uh, perform this with uh, decreasing chest tube outputs, especially under 500 milliliters uh, per day within the first couple of days, then that strategy is likely going to be successful uh, in eventually eliminating the chylothorax. If that wasn't successful, I think uh, enteral nutrition with medium-chain triglycerides would be the next step. Uh, and then if that was unsuccessful, then a decision made whether to uh, either surgically ligate the duct or embolize the duct or proceed with something more radical such as uh, total parenteral nutrition. And what is your strategy of choice to surgically ligate the thoracic duct? I think that in the vast majority of cases the thoracic duct can be uh, easily ligated thoracoscopically um, it can be easily visualized uh, as the structure between the azygous vein and the aorta and the esophagus low in the right chest and either clipped or uh, suture ligated um, and tested intraoperatively to ascertain that the uh, ligation has been successful. And how do you test that intraoperatively? by instilling either olive oil or cream or some other uh, lipid-containing fluid through a nasogastric tube during the operation. Uh, ideally, you do this early in the operation, notice where the leak is coming from, ligate the duct, and notice that the drainage goes away. And can you comment briefly about the um, success rate in thoracic duct embolization by uh, interventional radiology. Have you seen that uh, these procedures are usually successful? I'm impressed with the uh, degree of success that they are able to obtain. My personal use of, uh, of this uh, peripheral embolization of the thoracic duct radiographically is limited to cases in which I think uh, repeat surgery would be uh, either difficult technically or a strain physiologically on the patient. But uh, we found in certain cases um, uh, where this was the case and the patient would not tolerate surgery well that embolization has been successful. Okay. And do you tend to send these patients on any modified diet uh, after they're discharged home if they've had a history of chylostect injury? I don't. Uh, it, well, if they've had an injury and it's been repaired, I certainly don't uh, change their diet in any way. For patients that have uh, uh, lymphatic drainage from uh, mediastinal lymph node dissection, sometimes I'll send the patient home on a uh, low-fat diet, but those are usually violated when the patient goes home anyway. Uh, and I think in cases of lung cancer, it's rarely necessary. 
Well, thank you very much, Dr. D'Amico, for a very informative session. I certainly learned a lot, um, and I hope uh, you guys have as well. Um, so thank you for taking the time to talk to us today, and um, see you next time, maybe. Thank you, Sarah. It was a pleasure.